If you have your Bibles this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, a very familiar verse, and we're going to be thinking about God's Word this morning, God's amazing book, and hopefully it'll be a challenge to you. Um, I would think that most, and from what Pastor Eccles uh, say, most, uh, you've been attending here for a while, you're born again. If somebody's not, then hopefully uh, you can find Christ this morning. But if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, then God has given us a book, a book to help guide us and lead us. And so uh, we're going to think about this book. Uh, in, a, in America, surveys have been done over the last about five years uh, specifically, and it shows an alarming percentage of young people and even churches who are biblically illiterate. Uh, they've gone through, uh, the, the young people have gone through Sunday schools, uh, and they know practically nothing about the Bible. Uh, they cannot name the books of the Bible. They, can't, they can only quote a few scripture verses. They have little knowledge concerning the great doctrines of, of the faith. Uh, biblical characters are unknown to them. They have a foggy idea of where even some things fit in biblical history. Uh, and so here's a couple of questions in a survey that they asked. What is Nazareth famous for? What happened at Gethsemane? What took place on Calvary? Who is Simon Peter? And the test results were staggering. Remember, these are kids that have gone to Sunday school, kind of gone to church for a, a little bit of time. More than a third of the people that they uh, took this uh, test, more than a third did not know that Jesus spent his early boyhood in Nazareth. A third. Right? That, that's amazing to me. Uh, a quarter when were unable to identify Calvary as the place where Christ was crucified. I mean, 25%. Half had no idea of what happened at Gethsemane. Half. So you take just your congregation here today, and you take uh, this section or this section uh, and the, the people that they were interviewing. And uh, remember, normally when they're taking uh, an interview or a survey of churches, they're, they're surveying every, everybody, just lumping them all together. But the average person, if you knock on doors, um, I was talking with Pastor Eccles because uh, coming down in uh, southern Missouri, uh, basically on every corner there's a church, all right? And most of them are Baptist churches, all right, uh, which doesn't bode well if you want to leave one church. You just, you know, walk two steps and there's another one for you to go to. But uh, most people, if you knock on doors, uh, even in our area, uh, our area is a strong Catholic, a strong, strong Catholic area. But if you knock on doors, most people say they're Christians, most people say, oh, I'm all right. Uh, I'm fine. You know, I, I, I think I'm set. Uh, that's what most people would say. But 50% of those people don't even know what Gethsemane is. Right? 25%. Uh, so that would uh, be in here. Uh, there would be four or five of you wouldn't even know uh, what Calvary, what that means. And yet we say uh, most people, when you talk to them in America would say, well, yeah, I, I believe the Bible. Or at least, oh, I'm, I'm fine. I got a Bible. Um, uh, a lot of times when I'm door knocking, 
I carry little tiny Bibles with me. Uh, you can, there's a, a group called the Pocket New Testament League, and you can just order a little Gospel of John's, and they'll give you so many free per month. And so I carry those with me when I'm knocking on, on doors. And I try to get them, even if they won't, if they say, oh, I'm all right. And well, I say, this is the gospel of John. Do you know what that is? And some of them like, yeah, I, I think so. And so then I'll explain. So what is the gospels? Most of them don't even know what the gospels are. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's all about when Jesus was here on the earth. And John is one of the most simple books to read. And it talks all about Jesus. And I try to get them uh, even in America, I try to get them to read the Bible because the Bible is an amazing book. Yeah. It's a powerful, powerful book. One man put it this way, the Bible is the good book, the greatest book. It is God's book. It's, it's different from all other books. It's the most unique book known to humankind because it is divine. It is a divine library containing 66 books, 39 in the old 27 in the new and it was primarily written in two languages um, Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the new and it was written what's unique about it, it was written over a span of about 1500 years with 40 plus authors and yet there's no contradictions Amen. you can't find a book like that and in the Bible, just as we uh, start, uh, we're going to have three points this morning, but as we start, I just want you to think of what the Bible says about itself. A lot of times when you're going to describe something, uh, I like doing this, I've done a study on the Holy Spirit, and when you look at the Holy Spirit in the Bible, it gives you symbols, and those symbols kind of help you get a picture of what the Holy Spirit can do for you. Well, the Bible has some symbols about itself um, that help us to understand what the Bible can do. In Jeremiah 23 and verse 29, it says, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? So the Bible is compared to a fire and it's compared to a hammer. Now, uh, so what does, what does fire do? Fire can consume, it can burn things away, it can burn the dross away, but fire also can, can produce some warmth, can it? It can, also, it can also produce some good things. But a hammer, a hammer can destroy things, can it? It can build things, but it can destroy things. And it actually uses it in the idea of destruction. And like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. Uh, Psalm 119, 105, a verse that is very familiar with most. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So the Bible is a hammer. The Bible is a light. It's a lamp. Uh, Hebrews 4, 12, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's a two-edged sword. We're going to talk about that in the message uh, this morning. And then it says, uh, it is a, a probing instrument. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You get something that basically can go deeper. Maybe if you've done uh, some procedure uh, medically and they have these probes that go in and sometimes they can even have a monitor right there. And while they're probing inside your heart, they're like, hey, look at, look at this. And it, it's amazing what they can do. 
All right, what those things. But the Bible says it is a probing instrument that goes deeper than anything that is possible to the thoughts and intents of the heart. That is what we have in the Bible. And this morning, I'm going to consider on our text, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, a verse that most people know when it comes to Scripture, but we want to just pause and consider three things out of this text. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Heavenly Father, pray this morning that you'd help us as we consider God's amazing book. Lord, it is amazing that you have given it to us, and Lord, you've preserved it for us. And I pray that as we consider the wonder of your book, that, Lord, we would not think of it just as a textbook, but we would understand that this is something that you've given personally to each and every one of us so that we can find salvation, and then after salvation, so that we can grow to be more like our Savior. I pray that you would, Lord, give me uh, your sanctifying grace, need that, Lord, to enable me to take the Word of God and to do that which I cannot do, and that is speak to hearts. We ask and claim your power in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have three points that come out of our text. The, the Bible is a preserved book. The Bible is a profitable book. And thirdly, the Bible is a powerful book. All right, so first of all, we have preserved. All right, it's, uh, it's not Sunday school hour, okay? But we're going to try to do a little teaching, all right? So I know Sunday morning is normally when you grab your second nap, all right? Um, so just try to stay awake. Little, uh, a little teaching here, but I want to use uh, two words on the idea of the Bible is preserved. So we have inspiration and preservation. Okay, so what does it mean when the Bible says it's inspired? Okay, there's, there's wrong theories about that that are out there. People that go against scripture and say, oh yeah, well it's inspired, but they don't mean it like God means it. So what does it mean when we say the Bible is inspired. Well, there's some wrong theories, so I want to give you a couple of those. There's a lot of other ones, but I want to give you two that are false. Some people, when you say, well, the Bible is inspired, and they don't like the Bible, and they agree with you, say, oh, yeah, it's inspired. It's humanly inspired because they say, well, there's 40 authors. The Bible, those authors were inspired, but they mean it like, other writings were inspired. For instance, uh, there are people that I would say write and are inspired. You know, they, 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 there's an author that's out there. He's a novelist. Uh, maybe it's Shakespeare, Mark Twain, or maybe some um, current author that you really like. And you've read their book and you're like, how are they, and you use the word, inspired to write those things? And so there are some in the world and even the scoffers of what we call inspiration of Scripture that say, well, it's humanly inspired. We disagree with them on that. It's not, just, it's not just humanly inspired. So what they are saying is the Bible was inspired kind of like it was referenced in this uh, Sunday school hour, Fanny Crosby. All right, Fanny Crosby wrote 
thousands of hymns. Philip Bliss, uh, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, Isaac Watts. Um, you can go through Francis Havergal. You can go through your hymn book and you can see people that, man, in some ways, they were inspired. Okay, they were. Um, I haven't, I haven't re- wrote a hymn yet. All right, I, I'm trying to do my hand. I, I love poetry, so I, I've tried to do a little bit, uh, but it's all private right now. Uh, because most people, the hymns that I write, you wouldn't want to sing. Okay, you'd be like, you know what? You're not inspired. You're not inspired at all. But we, when we say the Bible is inspired, we don't mean humanly inspired. That's a false interpretation of what we mean as far as inspiration. The second uh, false theory of inspiration is partially. So what do, what do people say when they say the Bible is inspired, but it's not all inspired? Uh, this view believes that God provided the enabling of truth through the writers of Scripture and it made them infallible. So that means without error and matters of faith, but not infallible when they were talking about other things. Now, the problem I have, and we did this as our passage, okay? Um, our reading was in 2 Peter chapter 1 from the scripture this morning, the Bible reading. So in that passage, that knocks partial inspiration out of the ballpark because what did this say it says uh knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is any private interpretation so if it's only partial interpretation who gets to know which part is inspired and which part is not what that will throw us back to is a era called what the dark ages in the Dark Ages, who knew? Only the men of the cloth. All right, the men of the cloth. You go to them, and that's why, uh, and thank the Lord for people like uh, John Wycliffe and others who basically um, wanted the scriptures into the hands of every person. But what did the Catholic Church? The Catholic Church did not want the scriptures available in the lay language. Why? Because then they could know all scripture. It's not of any private interpretation. So we have to be careful when, and and these guys that don't adhere to all scripture is given by inspiration. All right, there's a problem that I have when they say it's only partial. The problem that I have is they're going against Scripture because it doesn't say part of Scripture is given by inspiration. It's saying all Scripture is given by inspiration. So partial inspiration is wrong. Human inspiration is wrong. So what do we as independent Baptists believe? This may be in your Constitution, and I'm going to help you. All right, because... What we normally hold to in independent Baptist churches is that our Bible is um, plenary, verbally inspired. That's what we say. And you would say, so what does that mean? I've talked, I've asked some people, they're like, hey, so 
we believe and the plenary verbal inspiration of scripture and like oh so what does that mean well it's plenary you know like oh yes and what else verbal like well what does that mean well we believe the plenary verbal like they never really explain it it's just plenary verbal right so what is plenary verbal inspiration of scripture plenary means all verbal means words so we believe every word of this book is inspired by God. That's what we hold to. And where do we get that from? Right from our text. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by what? The inspiration of God. So there's two words that we said that we're going to work on. Under the God's word is preserved. It is inspired and it's plenary verbally. That means every word is inspired by God. But then it is preserved for us. So what do we mean by preserve? Well, you'd say, um, I mean, this book, there's some books, most believe that Job probably is the oldest book. Okay? And you're talking thousands of years ago. See, so when I read Job, um, that's, you know, that's God's word. I mean, it, it was written thousands of years ago. Yes, I believe it. And you'd say, well, how is that true? Because it's preserved for me. God promised to do that. Where do we find that God promised to preserve his book? Well, let me just give you a couple of verses in the Bible that say this. Uh, Psalm 111 and verse 7 and 8 says, The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure they stand, stand fast forever and ever, ever and are done in truth and uprightness. That's Psalm 111. Psalm 117 and verse 2. The truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Psalm 119, 152. Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Psalm 119, 160, thy word is true from the beginning and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 1 Peter 1, 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The Bible says itself, that it will be forever. Amen. One of my favorite verses in the idea of preservation is found in Psalm 12 and verse 6 and 7. It says, the words of the Lord are pure words. Telling us that what God says is pure, but then he says, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, then this is the passage that gives preservation. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Guess whose job it is to preserve the word of God? God's. He said, I will keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. What's interesting is that passage, the word of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth. So, I was thinking about this. Maybe some of you do this. Uh, I haven't done this ever. Um, when my wife was like, hey, you know what? We'll go to church in this afternoon. Um, I'm going to put something in the furnace of earth. And when we get home, uh, we'll eat. 
I don't know about you, but that's never happened to me. They're like, uh, I'm not sure. I don't think I want anything eaten in the furnace of earth. Um, so what is the furnace of earth? Well, we have an example of that in the Old Testament. There was a furnace of earth. Right? It's found in the book of Daniel. Daniel and the three Hebrew children remember that um, they didn't bow. And so the king got really mad. And he's like, what am I going to do with these guys? Oh, I have a furnace of earth. And the reason that he, they did that furnace of earth is because at that time, which Psalms would have been, this Psalm 12 would have been in that time era, a furnace of earth was the hottest fire known to man at the time. But notice what God says about his Bible. He found the hottest fire that was available, and he tried it how many times? Seven times. Seven means complete. How do we know that? Well, God, there's a, there's a, a time when God saw he took six days to, to create the earth, and then on the seventh he rested because it was perfect, it was complete. So what did God do? He found the hottest fire, took the Bible, and he said, I tried it seven times so that when you pick up this book, it's complete. It's, it's complete. It's finished. It doesn't need anything else. And God says, and guess who's going to keep it? I will. So I can tell you that you are holding, and that's why we adhere, and we don't have time to go into all the whys, but we adhere, uh, the Independent Baptist, uh, the, I, I would say the theologically, theologically old school Independent Baptist, we adhere to the King James Version. And why is it that we do that? Because we believe that it is preserved for us. Right? It is what God inspired, God inspired it, and then he preserved it for us. That's why it's an amazing book. And it's also, you think about this, the atheists, the agnostics, they attack the Bible all the time and they say it's a bunch of fairy tales. If it's a bunch of fairy tales, just let it be then. I mean, what's the big deal? Just let it be, it'll, it'll die away. But it hasn't died away. That's why they have to attack it, because the word of God. I mean, why aren't they attacking Aesop's fables the same way? Have you had anybody stand up and they're having a, they're having a debate? You know what? We're going to have the Shakespearean people get up here and we're going to tell them that's false. Right? They're not doing that. You don't need to have big debates, uh, pros and cons against Shakespeare. But you do that with the word of God. You know why? Because this book changed lives. All right, so our first point is that the Word of God is what? A preserved book. Notice in our text back in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So that's where we got the word preserved. Okay, it's inspired, it's preserved, and is, here's our next word, profitable. So God's Word is not just a preserved book, it is a profitable book. And we don't have time to go through every one of these things. But notice, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So the word of God is valuable. The, the idea of profitable is it does you good. 
All right. Um, normally, when we go into business, we want to be in business for that which is profitable. Right? We don't go into business to lose money. Some people do. The government does. All right. Things like that. But most places that have brains, uh, they want to they go into something that is going to make money. Okay. So profitability. The Bible says about itself, it's profitable. It'll do you good. So what is it profitable for? Notice what it says for doctrine. Now, that's sometimes a, a scary word, okay? Because people will come in and they're like, hey, so uh, what do you do at your church? Well, we teach doctrine. Wow. What kind of doctrines? And, and actually, I, I love the study of doctrine in Scripture. I love it. Um, so there's a, there's a big word. In fact, those I did not divide it up. Most have taken the word of God and they divide it into 10 doctrines. And they make big words with those, like ecclesiology, eschatology. Here's one that I love, harmartiology. I just like saying it. Like, so what are you doing, harmartiology? Whoa. You know what that means? Sin. All right, so you know where they get that word sin? Uh, it's um, for all have sinned and come short. That word short is harmar. Right? It means to fall short. So that's where they got the word harmar. I just like saying it because then you can, you can wow your people at work when uh, they're like, oh, so what did you do at church? We learned doctrine. Oh, really? What do harmar theology? Well, come to church and we can tell you. All right? Sinner. All right? That's what it means. You're a sinner. All right, but the, the word of God can teach us doctrine. So what is doctrine? Doctrine simply means teaching. That's all it means. And you know what a church should be known for? Teaching the Bible. And that's not really that popular today. Most, most places, I mean, even now, I don't know why you're... I don't know if you know the trend. You're not supposed to have white lights anymore in church. All right? It's supposed to be like blue and all kinds of different things. And all right, you kind of come in and you can't see. All right, Which is kind of makes sense because most of them don't open the Bible anyways. But you, you go to church to learn the doctrine, the teachings of the Bible. So I go to church. If I go to church and I don't learn about Christ, it's not really a good place. Amen. If I don't learn about the Word of God, it's not a good place. And I tell our folks this. Sometimes some of the teaching is not always jumping up and down. It's kind of like school. How do you make algebra fun? You know, as the teacher up there, like, why? X. All right. And, and you're like, you know what? You're crazy. All right. It's algebra. All right. Or geometry or calculus or even some aspects. I mean, I like reading about history, but there's some aspects that's just, some of it is dry. It's teaching. But teaching upon teaching upon teaching. Uh, the Old Testament says line upon line, precept upon precept. You know what happens over time as I am in the word of God and I'm in a good church that is teaching me line upon line. All of a sudden, 
It just kind of flows out of you answers. You're like, where did, you, where did that come from? Because the word of God is profitable. Amen. What is it profitable for? Teaching. Right. I want to be part of a church that is teaching the word of God. Notice what else it says here. The word of God is good for doctrine. It's good for reproof. So the other word that's in there is correction. So that word correction, the idea behind it as far as the, the, the definition of it means to set up straight. Some, and studying that word, I like looking at the, um, what, do they, what do they call that? When you study, you break a word down. Etymology, Etymology thank you. I was thinking of something else, and I was like, that is not the right word. <laughs> so etymology, when you look at the etymology, some say that the idea of correction has a medical background to it. So by that, um, you might have broken a bone sometime, and you have to go to a doctor, and the doctor has to correct the bone. So what does he do? He sets it up straight. He sets it. So you know what the Bible does when you're, when you're at a good church or in your own personal walk with the Lord? You know what happens to me sometimes? I'll be reading the Bible, and the Bible all of a sudden sets me up straight on something that I thought myself was right. But the Bible corrects me. It sets me up straight. And the Bible is profitable to do that. That's why church is important. There are some people like, oh, you know what? I, I can grow. I can grow at my house. Well, okay. But, it, but it's not following scripture. Because the scripture says that I'm not supposed to forsake the assembly right. of ourselves. In fact, you go back to the 70s and 80s, and the evangelical movement was kind of taking off, and they scoffed at the Baptists. And they scoffed at the Baptists because they're like, Baptists, you know what? Come to our church. We don't have church all the time. Which I don't know how that was promoted, except that you get backslidden people to say, I don't want to be at church all the time. And then they kind of promoted this and they said, well, at our church, we, we do expository worship. Whereas like, well, we never, we never preach the word of God. We preach the word of God all the time. And I have a, a bunch of Baptist friends Pastors that we, we kind of came together and we were like, wait a minute. So what they said is, we're better at the Bible because we do less of it. That's actually what they said. And they won the argument. Because they got all kinds of people like, yeah, we study the Bible. You do less of it. Actually, Baptists through history have been stronger doctrinally. You know why? Because we study it more. Amen. We've been at church more. And it corrects us. It corrects us. It makes us right. The Bible is profitable. The word of God can correct us in regards to Christian doctrines. All right? The, the right thinking uh, of different things. And that's why it is important. We were talking about it last night. Uh, just about some of the, you know, the internet is okay, but it's really bad for new Christians. It's horrible. There's so much ridiculous thought that's out there. And really, uh, some of the guys, we were talking about that, they, they really 
are only trying to get people to watch them. So they have to say something really ridiculous just to get a thumbs up. So what are they actually? The Bible calls that. They're a people-pleasing preacher. Right? They're not studying the scripture for scripture's uh, sake just to help people. I have no problem if somebody wants to get the gospel out there. But my purpose of preaching in the pulpit is not for the online crowd. It's for the local assembly. That's what's most important. And you see, when I go to Scripture, it corrects some of those think- the thinking on that. The Bible, it's an amazing book. Why? Because it's preserved for us. It's profitable for us. But here in our text, notice what it says. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we get our third point from that word inspired. Okay, and then if you want, you can turn to Hebrews 4.12 and we find the actual word where it says, for the word of God is quick and powerful. So the word of God is preserved, it's profitable, and it's powerful. So that word inspired, literally that word means God breathed. So tell me, you guys know the Bible. It's the first time God breathed in Genesis. Remember Genesis? All creation, God in his wonder and amazement, what did he do? And it tells you the power of God's spoken word, which, think about it. God's spoken word, he spoke the trees, spoke the stars. He spoke these things, and they're all over the place. But man, he was like, you know what, I'm going to do this different. It became pretty personal to God. He said, you know what, I'm going to form man from the dust of the ground. And after he formed him, he reached down and he breathed into his nostrils. And what did he do? He became a living soul. So we know this. When God breathed into man, what happened to man? He became alive. So you know what I can tell you about this book? God breathed. That's why the atheists hate this book. It's alive. So in Hebrews 4.12, it says, for the word of God is quick. That's an old English term. It doesn't mean your Bible can win a marathon. It can win it. The higher drug gas, stick your Bible out there. It's quick. It means alive. So the word of God is alive. All right, I know that. All right, I've been working with a, a young man, and it, it's just been amazing. He's really backslidden, really rough. And then uh, God, in his wonder and in amazement, made his book come alive in his heart. He's not a, he's not a big reader. He's a listener. And so, in the month of July, he listened to the whole Bible. In the month of August, he's listened to the whole Bible again. It's transforming his life. Because the Word of God, you know what it is? It's alive. It's powerful. It can do things that we can't do. 
I can go to God and I can pray and I can say, God, can you, can you help this person? Can, uh, and I can pray and I think we should pray. I think there's fasting. There's a lot of things that we can do as we are praying and asking God to do uh, amazing work. But we've got to understand that the Bible is that agent. All right, what's interesting in Hebrews chapter 4 is you know the context of the book of Hebrews. The context of the book of Hebrews is all Jesus. Jesus, the phrase, I think it's 13 times the phrase is found, Jesus is better, basically. So the whole context of the book is that Jesus is better. But wrote, in, in Hebrews 4.12, what does it say? For the word of God, all of a sudden, it's talking about Jesus. And then it says the word of God. It's quick and powerful. But verse 13, it switches right back and it says Jesus. So you know what I believe it's talking about? You have a picture of the living word and the written word. So the living word is Jesus Christ. Where do I find that? In John 1. In John 1, Christ is the living word. And from the living, from the written word of God... The living word of God is proclaimed. And it is seen and it's alive. It's powerful. And so as you give the word of God out, you know what happens? It changes people. I think in America, uh, me and my oldest son, we talk about this. We say America needs a revival of the Bible. You know, there's all kinds of other things, and I think they're, they're good, and, and we talk about them, but really, the Bible needs to become preeminent again. We've sidestepped the Bible, and, and, and people will say, well, what about this? You know, uh, Bible believers are kind of haters, you know, because they hate this type of gender or this type of person or this type of person, and, and they, they're always negative about sin. Well, the problem is our faith is built on the Bible. The Bible is where I get authority to say that. It's not just my thoughts. I'm just the messenger of God's word. And God's word, though, can come and transform somebody. It can change them. Why? Because it is powerful. God's word is a powerful book. That word uh, powerful is there. And then it says sharper in Hebrews 4.12, sharper than any two-edged. Again, some people in the etymology of that word say that means a two-mouthed, all right? And you'd say, well, what does that mean? Well, they went back during the Roman Empire, and remember the Roman Empire, they'd have Roman soldiers, and Roman soldiers were more hand-to-hand, and you'd have a shield, and you'd have your sword, and they said that certain soldiers were known as having a two-mouthed sword. And I go, what does that mean? He said that that soldier was so unbelievable with his sword that anything in the purview of that sword, it ate it up. And I thought, oh, that's a good description of my book. God's book. You know what? Anything that's in its path, it gets destroyed. That's the idea of God's word being a hammer. It breaketh the rock in pieces. It's the power of our book. The word of God is powerful in cleansing from sin. We see that in Psalm 119, 9 and verse 11. Wherewithal shall a young man 
cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. You see, when we have a problem with sin, I can go to the Bible and it can cleanse me from sin. The Bible is powerful in imparting strength. I've had to deal, and I'm sure in, in your lives, if you've, been a, if you've been a Christian and have been in this life uh, for basically more than about 30 minutes, you've probably had to deal with some heartache. And heartache, uh, as opposed to some of the um, prosperity preachers, heartache does come to Christians. It comes to all of us. But the difference is that I have somebody that sticketh closer than a brother, and I have a word of God that can bring solace and strength. And I've been with some people, and there have been some really hard things that they've had to deal with. But the word of God brings comfort. It brings strength. The word of God is powerful in illuminating life's pathway. It says in Psalm 119 and 130, the entrance of thy words giveth light. There are sometimes it can be unclear as far as steps to take in this life. But the word of God gives light. It gives direction. It gives understanding. The word of God illuminates the mind. It points the way for us in life. So here in our text, it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And notice why, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God has a desire for us to get saved, to get saved through the illumination of Christ in Scripture. And then after that, he wants us to be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. He didn't just save us to do nothing. He saved us to glorify him through good works here on this earth. There's a famous story in history that shows the amazing power of the book, the Bible. There was a, a ship called the Bounty. Mm-hmm. It was commanded by Lieutenant William Bly. He journeyed to the South Pacific in 1787 to collect plants of the breadfruit tree. Sailors signed on to the Bounty as far as working on the Bounty, considering the voyage to paradise. They're like, oh, we want to be on this trip. He had nobody second in command, so Captain Bly appointed his young friend, Fletcher Christian, to be second in command. The bounty stayed in Tahiti for about six months. The sailors, led by happy-go-lucky Fletcher Christian, enjoyed paradise to the full. When, when time came after the six months for departure, some of the men wanted to stay behind. They had developed a liking for the island girls and um, three men trying to desert were flogged and the mood on the ship became pretty dark on April 28, 1789. Fletcher Christian staged the most famous mutiny in history. Bly and his supporters were set adrift in a boat, a lifeboat, which is amazing. They actually navigated to safety 3,700 miles. 
The mutineers aboard the bounty immediately began quarreling what to do next. Christian returned to Tahiti, where he left some of the mutineers, and then he he took some uh, he kidnapped some women, traveled with the remaining crew a thousand miles to a little island called Pitcairn Island. And on Pitcairn Island, they established a society. There, the little group, though unraveled. They distilled whiskey from a a native plant. Drunkenness, fighting, marked their colony and disease also. Pretty soon, disease and murder took everybody but one man. Alexander Smith. Alexander Smith, after some time, found himself the only man on Pitcairn Island, surrounded by an assortment of women and children. That was it. It seems as though the rebellion didn't turn out so well. Then an amazing change occurred. Smith went back onto the bounty and he found a neglected Bible. He took that Bible and he read it and he read it and he read it. And the message of God's word pierced his heart. Pretty soon, he began basically Sunday schools, teaching the women and the children. He taught the colonists the scriptures and helped them obey its instructions. The message of Christ so transformed their lives that 20 years later, in 1808, a ship, the Topaz, landed on the island and they found a happy Christian society. From a rebellious, drunken, disease-ridden, murdering society to one that was happy and was surviving? And why? Because of this amazing book. All Scripture is given by inspiration. It's preserved for us, it's profitable, and it's powerful. So the challenge to us then this morning, you say, wow, all the, that's pretty neat. But the preaching of the word of God doesn't do well if we don't apply it. So what have you done with this book this week? I know myself, I have, um, driving down here, I listened to the Gospel of John, all of it, and I'm planning on listening to at least half of it on the way home, because you know what I've found? This book is unbelievable. It's an amazing book. And even this morning, as I was reviewing some of the words that came into my mind, God just made one of those first verses just stick so hard. Just say, that's a verse for this week for you. See, it doesn't do us any good to say, yeah, we got the Bible. But what good is it for you if you never pick it up? Have you used it this week? Have you read it this week? Have you shared it with somebody this week? If we don't share it, no life can be transformed. 
said heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. And it could be in just a moment, Pastor Eccles will come handle the invitation. But I'd like to ask you this. Is there somebody here this morning you would say, you know what, I do not know Jesus Christ as my Savior. You mentioned about how he can transform a life. My, I don't know a time that Jesus Christ came into my life. And there should be a specific time that you know that. You'd say, would you pray for me? I won't embarrass you. But if you'd say, I do not know Jesus as my Savior, would you pray for me? As we close, is there anybody like that this morning? What about as Christians here this morning? What have you done with the Word of God that's been preserved for you? Have you been in it this past week? Well, if you haven't, then I challenge you, be in it more this week. Be in it more. The Word of God, it's been preserved for you. It's profitable for you. And it's powerful. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time that we could look at Scripture. I pray that you would bless the invitation time. Well, thank you, thank you for the Word of God that's been preserved for us. Bless the invitation, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.